Hi, everyone. This is Abhi Shake from ShakeTheCosmos.com. My guest today is Naomi Sturm Singha. She's the executive director of the Philadelphia Folklore Project and the co-founder of Los Herederos, a media arts organization dedicated in, to inheriting culture in the digital age. A folklorist and ethnomusicologist by training, Naomi specializes in themes of urban and immigrant folk life indigenous and mestizo traditions of the Americas, Sri Lankan folk arts and folklore. Her deeply held belief that local knowledge both sustains communities and advances the quality of urban life is central to these organizations' approach to folk life in service of social change. She holds a master's in ethnomusicology from Columbia University and a bachelor's from Bowdoin College. And that's how we really met. Go polar bears. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Naomi. My pleasure. My pleasure. Nice to see you. Um, I'm going to just jump right into it. Um, as I was you know, reading your bio, there were some words I had to practice on myself. I learned some new things. And one of them is folklore. So we're going to just jump right into it. What is folklore? So that's a great question. And um, the answer is not clear the way most important things don't have a clear definition or a clear answer. Uh, there are some different definitions of folklore out there. There are some also some different terms that people that refer slightly differently within this field of folklore, but they are used sometimes interchangeably like folk life and folk art. Um, so rather than give a singular definition, I thought that I would read a definition which I wrote for a different position um, that I held in New York City many years ago and just give some of my favorite musings on how we understand folklore because it, it, it is it can get a little esoteric and I think that that's actually ironic, right? Because what does folk mean? Folk means people in German, right? And that's actually the term. Oh, so folk yeah. means people in what language did you say? In German, well, Volk, Volk would be people. And uh, the field of folklore has some uh, arguably dark roots, actually, in, 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 in German philosophy and, and nationalism and other kinds of things. But, but really, yeah, the term folklore means the lore or like the traditional knowledge of the people, right? And so our work is always centered in, in people and, you know, uh, the people who give rise to this knowledge. So okay, so folk means people, and lore means um, what you're saying again. Was it? Um, well, lore can refer to any number of things, but it's often the way I would I would understand it is like traditional knowledge passed on between people that you know it's kind of that debate of like the real versus the true and lore is is the real but not perhaps scientifically proven in every in every case but um i wonder i wonder how far uh the tradition goes back so i'm indian and i was i moved to us when i was 15. there are all these traditions i brought with me but i feel like you know i just wonder like when you think about folklore how far are you looking back Sure. someone's sure heritage. so so you know the definition the working definition i like to use is folk life refers to living traditions art forms and everyday cultural expressions that hold shared meaning within groups 
Folk life is, co is community knowledge given aesthetic shape. It explores the identity and place and is passed forward through the generations, often through informal community-based creative practices. So I think about like my um, grandfather, mm. he would always make us sit around the fire and like, um, you know, this was a planned fire. It wasn't like we were burning something down. And my job was to throw some stuff in the fire. Like, are we talking about like that kind of like can tradition, like what is a tradition that right. kind of, or is it pretty broad? Sounds like maybe. You yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's very broad, but I think that what you're describing is certainly folklore or folk life, right? It's your, it's your folk life and folk life is something that everybody has. How in touch with it we are, how we refer to it, how we think about it is a different story. But it's, you know, I always tell people that folk life is the magic of every day. It's the things that we do in our life that could be overtly cultural, connected to heritage. Like you have a particular experience as Indian American, uh, you know, with roots in another country, being a part of an immigrant community, having things passed on to you. So you're you're noting those things because that's very central to your experience and your, 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 but, but folk life is really an authentically lived cultural experience. And so something that your grandfather passed down to you makes complete sense because the other way that we define folk life as opposed to other things, or we define a tradition is it's something that's passed on in families or in groups from person to person orally. It's not something you would learn in an institution. Now, ironically, People do learn about folk life and sometimes cultural traditions exclusively in an institution. We can talk about that at another moment. But, but what makes it folk life is that it's this informal cultural knowledge that's shared by a group of people. And they, they decide that, that that knowledge or that tradition represents them, right? That there's that, totally. there's that collective decision. Um, and I think, I mean, just to kind of, you mentioned something around, um, so like, like what if, like, I guess there are these experiences and traditions, but not everybody remembers them themselves. But there seems to be this thing you said where you, there are some memories and traditions people remember, but like, um, what makes things memorable um, that, um, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a fairly subjective, uh, that's a fairly subjective question. I think that people's life um, and the types of experiences, the level of trauma uh, that people experience, natural personalities, you can really dive into psychology on that other end, which is not, not divorced from all this, but I'm not gonna, that's completely beyond my realm to say why people remember what they do. I do know why people remember certain things. Memory is a big, it's a big topic in folklore. Well, it just, it just feels like a little unfair to me because I only remember certain things in my life, traditions. Sure, sure. But then um, if I want to like really use folklore as uh, folk be understand my folk life, I may not remember 80% of the things. Right. Well, I, it's, it's, it's an intentional work too, right? So people that, that, you know, folklorists or not, sometimes it's, as I said, it's just, it's a practitioner or a lived experience. People decide how central this is to their life. If they're going to be a culture bearer, they're going to be someone that wants to pass things on. And 
it's, it's a life's work, right? And that's why there's a field around it. That's why there's the work that I do, um, you know, as a, as a profession. Um, but I think it's important to remember, and when I'm trying to explain, you know, I said, when I try to explain what is folk life to people, and I, I mentioned that idea of it's like the fabric or the magic of the everyday that make our lives worth living. You know, there is folklore that is like what you described. It's a particular ritual tradition that you did with your grandfather, and, you, and that sticks out to you. There are people who are traditional artists who learn a traditional dance form or to play a traditional genre of music, or to make a traditional object, you know, or to be a spiritual leader, right? There are people that it's very overt that it's this like outside kind of expressive or material culture, and you can really codify it and say, this is a traditional art form. But then there's this other realm of folk life, which in some ways is my favorite, which people take completely for granted until they have that awakening of how valuable it is. And usually that's when it gets taken away, right? So when neighborhoods undergo intense periods of gentrification and start to lose their culture, their neighborhood feel, um, the sounds you're used to hearing, the characters you're used to seeing in a local bodega or, you know, takeout restaurant, the way that people, the accent people used to have on English that was that Boston accent, you know, there's all these other realms that are very informal and they're not traditions that people study. They're traditions that people just have in them, and they probably think they're normal until either they are confronted with diversity, you know, with, with someone who has no idea and says, why do you talk like that, right? Or those things are taken away, and they feel the loss, right? They feel the lack of connection. Because I think that we, as a society today, we sometimes don't value that lack of human, value that, that type of um, artful human connection, until suddenly we, we wonder why we feel so sluggish. We wonder why we feel depressed. We wonder why being in quarantine has been so hard, right, during COVID-19. And it's because that there is such power in those authentic and often absolutely wild, if you stop and think about it, you know. So I, I, I'm thinking about sort of, it, I appreciate getting into this topic as because these are all things I can't see. Yeah, well, you could, you could see an object, hypothetically, you know. It's not, material culture is an important piece of, of folk life, but a lot of it is ephemeral or expressive and intangible, yes. Okay, so there, there are things I can see that are part of folk life and the things yeah. I can't see. So there's tangible and intangible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what about you? Like, how has it been helpful for you in your, in your life or career? Yeah. Well, it's been, it's been helpful in, in both areas. You know, I think that I was, um, I was someone who was blessed enough to grow up in a family that really valued our cultural traditions and honestly valued cultural traditions of others too. You know, I grew up in New York city and the surrounding counties and it's a very diverse part of the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, not, not to say that if you're in a, in a non-diverse area, you don't have very strong folk life, sometimes even stronger, but I did grow up confronted with diversity of traditions. I was naturally drawn to that. I, you know, I also want to say that I look back at pictures of myself as a kid and you can see that I had this great wonder of the world around me. And, and I was always curious about people that were different from me in a very peaceful, but very vehemently curious kind of way. So that's something that I think is a part of my personality. I'm a searcher. I, I observe, I ask questions. These are all parts of folk life methodology. 
field work methodology. And I also grew up in a family that um, really valued cultural traditions, a New York Jewish family that was not particularly religious, but had sacrificed a lot to continue to be who they were, right, in this world. And New York City had allowed them, you know, going back several generations to do that. And so, you know, I did grow up with a certain reverence for who you are, cultural traditions, and also who other people are. And that was a a way of finding meaning. So I think I had that from 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 conception, really. Um, but I appreciate it also, that so much. And I mean, I appreciate how aware you are of your own traditions and own family and own influence, but also from, you know, how it impacts others. Um, and I just wonder, like, not everybody is in that same spot where they've kind of recognized that. So how does someone tap into, into that tradition and that world? And um, do you have suggestions on that? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, I'll, I'll kind of, it may seem like I'm veering off, but I'm going to answer your questions. So, you know, I, I had this kind of innate um, interest and I think uh, just, I was pulled toward this work, but I didn't know what it was until I was an adult, until actually I went to, even during Bowdoin College, you know, when we met, I, I still didn't really know how to I didn't have the language to speak about this. I just knew what spoke to me and what interested me. And I knew that it, I was so passionate about it that I was actually resisting more secure careers and more secure lines of study. And this was a pretty big conflict for me in college. And it still is sometimes, you know, but I felt so pulled to this work. And I think it was at Bowdoin College that I learned about the fields of the social sciences, you know, anthropology, ethnomusicology. I didn't really know about folklore yet, but I began to unpack that you could have a career dedicated to the study and the sharing and the perpetuation and the giving of this, of this knowledge. And I said, you know, that's, that's for me. I went on to pursue uh, higher education and ethnomusicology. And at first I thought I would be a professor and I would be an academic of the, of these fields, right. Of ethnomusicology or of folklore. But uh, I quickly realized that, you know, my, my pull was really to be in the public sector, you know, and to be doing something we call public folklore, which is, you know, housed in either state government or the nonprofit sector or sometimes in um, community-based business, even more grassroots cultural life and, and organizing. You know, I was, very, I was very pulled to the community organizing. And, um, so is, is, college, is college sort of part of tapping into it where well, it was it was school. for me it yeah. was for me it was not where I it was not that I think I had it so I was able to tap into it but college for me coming from a background where these kinds of professions were not an option and not discussed college was what gave me the words and the language and to understand the world in which I could do and could pursue these things um, but I think I already knew their power and so in terms of how people can tap into them, I think it's something that some people just naturally tap into because they have a very strong sense of community or, you know, family traditions. Um, but there are other ways as well. And I, you know, here I would give a plug for my work in public folklore, which is that there are so many tremendous folk life programs and organizations throughout the United States. It's, it's a small niche field, but it's pretty robust. You know, it's pretty active in every state. There is something going on down from like, you know, starting maybe at like a, a governmental level, like the state folk life program on down to very grassroots community organizations. And I think a lot of people in their respective 
settings or milieus actually probably already gravitate toward these things that perpetuate either their own culture or a culture they're interested in, but maybe they don't think of that as like a folk life organization, but in many cases they are. And in many cases they're funded through a, a schematic that this field has worked very, very hard to create, you know? So I guess but, you know, so people yeah. can tap into it from, they could have a good foundation and then also you're yeah, actually actively not. doing you know, this work now. Yeah. Or, or not. You could also just have a, a thirst for it and go to a program or a festival or an event or listen to a podcast or, or a piece of documentation that one of these um, great organizations or artists or, you know, organizing groups put together. I think that sometimes people tap into stuff um, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg is an event that they attend and then it, it answers something in them that they're looking to know more about. And, um, and then they begin to look for that more in their own life. And you mentioned some of the work that you're doing now with some of the organizations. Uh, I'm just trying to like think of a practical example that like what's a technique or a uh, example that you've done um, that, you know, that's that people can kind of attach themselves to. Like an example of a program? Yeah, like an example of a project from um, that you might have done. So just so, I guess what I'm trying to also see is like a lot of the listeners are entrepreneurs and startup owners. Yeah. And how can they, um, because it, there is this such self-introspection, mm-hmm. powerful self-introspection in folklore. And mm-hmm. how can, um, and it's part of uh, starting a startup. You mm-hmm. have to know what your roots are. And so I guess thinking about like, what are some techniques that you use in your work today um, to help people? Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to push you a little on that. I agree that knowledge of your roots, knowledge of yourself, knowledge of your strengths is very important to creating a successful business. Um, And I also think that, the ability to compel, tell compelling stories is paramount to marketing. Um, I think there are a lot of interesting overlaps between folk life practice and folk life work and the business world. It's actually something that I'm curious to pursue more in my life. But I do want to say that folk life practice and, and folk life is not about the individual. It's not about you. And part of being good at this work is decentering yourself and realizing that you are... The the what? Sorry, I just want to make sure. Decentering yourself, right? So something I always tell my students when I teach uh, a class, which I do every other year on applied folklore and ethnomusicology is the first day is that unlike any other class you've probably taken at this university, you don't, this is not about you right? It can become, you know, sometimes things become about you because they're your culture or things like that. But there's a certain amount of um, letting go of rugged individualism in, in folk life because it's about community and it's about how people define themselves with others. And so I do think that it's just important. I just want to throw that out there because to me, you know, the way you described like folk life as a tool for an entrepreneur. Yes, it absolutely can be, but there is a ethic. There's a question of ethics and a humanistic side that has to be, in my opinion, also respected. And like, 
it's not just a commodity that people can use to like better their business, right? It's also, it's something that requires a lot of intention and attention and like, you know, study and thought. And in order to have an authentic lived experience, you have to live a little bit. So it's not I just, appreciate you know, that. yeah, you know? think, yeah, totally. Um, but, but a folk life approach or a folk life practice can be very interesting for business. And so I'll give an example of a fundraiser that I'm doing right now for the Philadelphia Folklore Project, which I hope to expand. Can we, maybe we can include a, information about that as well in the description. Sure. Folks and I think this might be interesting for, yeah, project is. definitely. And I think this might be interesting for people, as you said, if your audience is largely business and entrepreneurial. So, um, Nonprofits obviously have diverse portfolios of, of fundraising and income and things like that that we collect through hard work to keep our work going. And um, the Philadelphia Folklore Project for a while has had a close relationship with the Indonesian community in Philadelphia. We've been engaged in a multi-year long-term project that's like based in field work, deep relationships. So we didn't just go into a community and discover a tradition and then use it to our benefit. But through a very holistic relationship, we, um, we have this relationship with the Indonesian community. And one of the traditions that is very popular is to have these Luatan feasts. And they are these beautiful Javanese feasts where you eat on the floor uh, with rice on banana leaves and an assortment of dishes. And it's, it's actually usually for celebration or like a rite of passage in a family. It's not usually a fundraiser, but the community here in Philadelphia, thanks to a wonderful caterer, Irza Hajati, and also my colleague at the Philadelphia Folklore Project, Sinta Penyami, they've really sort of um, given a spin to this tradition and used it as a really amazing grassroots way to like make money in the community for things. So when they, and this is common in a lot of cultures, right? Like in a Peruvian setting, you might have a pojada, which is like where you're selling chicken or like other people might have a potluck, you know? And so these ideas of these, of these community dinners that you use to raise money is, is makes a lot of sense. And we've been doing these for a while through the Philadelphia Folklore Project, where we would hire this community caterer and we would do these dinners. And it was, it was a beautiful thing, a beautiful coming together. With the advent of COVID-19, we were not able to continue that, which was, yes, it was a loss to us, but it was also a huge loss if you think about people that were the most adversely affected by this pandemic. You know, artists or people in the service industry were up there, right? Because they don't work remote. Um, if restaurants are cut off or people aren't getting married and hiring caterers, I mean, these are people in formal economies or small business economies that were just gutted to their core. Did, and you, so, did you figure out a way to solve that? Yeah. Yeah. So that was sort of at the forefront of, of my mind because I felt like, well, um, our artists are suffering and they probably lost their day jobs as well or the other things that they do. And so with, um, with one of our board members, Faria Khan, who's my co-chair, co um, as well as, you know, just thinking and working in the community, really listening to the needs, we came up with this idea for Louboutin in a Box. And it was already culturally relevant. Um, the Indonesian community likes to do takeout of like a, a, a meal in a box. It's just it's something that, that people enjoy. And I felt like while we were losing certain aspects of the tradition of this community dinner, we were maintaining others, which is that like, you're getting this nice, you know, takeout box. A lot of restaurants do that in, in Philadelphia. That's um, great. And how can people um, support that project? Is it something they just go on the website? 
Yeah, so we we are in the middle of our first round and we're already more than half sold out. Um, so right now for the first round of Louboutin in a Box, you can go on the Philadelphia Folklore Project website and um, you can make an order if you live in Philadelphia or in the five surrounding counties. This first round is a local round and you get a dinner for two, vegetarian or non, and you also get a handmade batik uh, cloth face mask by a local artist. So we're also supporting um, artists as well through this project that are not just chefs. And you also receive a cultural dedication that tells you about the tradition. It has its reheating instructions and it has information about the folklore project. And it's $60 and it's the, pro- the proceeds are 50-50. So half of that's going to the folklore project and half of that is being reinvested in artists and small businesses in the community. I appreciate um, that so much. Yeah. I mean, it kind of ties to earlier what you were saying about the community aspect of folklore and how it threads that. Um, so appreciate uh, that fundraiser and we'll be sure to include a link to it in the podcast as well. Uh, so as we're wrapping up, any other shout outs or, or events you want to share with the viewers? Um, well, we're, we're a little crippled in terms of events right now, but I would, I would give a shout out to my, to my other love, which is Los Herederos. If you go to our website, losherederos.org, that's a media folk arts organization. So there's a lot of digital content that you can enjoy and things that you can, can learn about our work and, and, and the power of documentary storytelling there. Um, and with the Philadelphia Folklore Project, if you have more questions about like definitions or how to define these things, you can also go on our website, which is folkloreproject.org. But I would just give a big shout out to, you know, my two places of work. They give my life so much meaning, um, but also to, to my family and my friends and, and to the field in general of folk life, which I think is just small, but constantly resilient and constantly responsive. Um, and I think our methodologies have just become more meaningful in these times that we find ourselves. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, uh, talking about this topic with you. Thanks, Naomi. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week.